WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guest is the writer and artist of the upcoming Humanoids graphic novel, Retroactive, uh, as well as books like Count, uh, Mother Panic, Gotham AD, and High Crimes, uh, Ibrahim Mustafa. Welcome, Ibrahim. Hello, uh, all otherwise known as the third best friend. So just for <laughs> everyone out there. <laughs> usually, usually by the end, it's that stepbrothers moment where the guest is like, did we just become best friends? Yup. <laughs> yeah, we'll do but, karate in the uh, virtual garage. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, just perfect. Play with a sword signed by Randy Jackson, all of that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we are recording this on April 11th, and I am timestamping this episode because, uh, Ibrahim, you're in Portland and you got you guys got snow today. We did. We set a record today for it was the first time in 82 years that I think we'd had more than an inch of snow or more than a half inch or something like that. So, yeah. Got to wow. love climate change, right? <laughs> I, I guess, yeah. <laughs> so uh, used to checking on you guys for the the wildfires, and and this is oh, we get them all now. It's uh, it's quite the it's quite the thing. I mean, like literally in 2020, we had wildfires so bad that we thought we were going to have to evacuate in the city center area. That we, my gosh, know, like, yeah. I mean, we live on the sort of the edge of of Portland proper, but um, yeah, and then you know. Four months later, we had an ice storm that knocked out power for five days. So it's, uh, yeah, we're just, we're running the gamut. Oh, and then, um, well, yeah, anyway, it's been nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, we're getting used to there being tornadoes. Yeah. Which I can't get over. There was a tornado that dropped less than five miles from my house. And in the, the shopping lot of a, a parking lot of a shop, right. And wow. the carts were everywhere. Like they, they spent wild. days recovering all the carts that had been blown everywhere. It's like, we did not have those two years ago. Yeah. No, and, and it's funny. Last year, apparently, New Jersey tied its record for tornadoes. Uh, it had been seven. And so that's what we had last year. Uh, so, you know, uh, that's, we're, that's not a record I'm really looking to break. A, but Seven is a lot of tornadoes right one is a lot of tornadoes i think yes <laughs> so, yes agreed yeah yeah we had we had a record heat wave uh last summer where it got up to about 120 here oh, which wow. is i mean it's the pacific northwest like it, it's that's insane that's like it was like it was like baghdad temperatures in in portland oregon you know so yeah i'm uh i'm i'm moving toward trying to trying to you know i mean i'm constantly trying to reduce my footprint my carbon footprint and Mm-hmm. if uh if anything gets you on that train it's these extreme weather things you know so absolutely yeah. we'll see what happens i'm not i'm not quite you know doomsday prepping but i'm you know <laughs> trying to trying to grow stuff and and um you know i'm really excited to try to get some solar panels so that if you know mm. we do have uh winter weather stuff like this i don't have to worry about losing power so yeah that's the eventual plan anyway right on but uh, yeah, let's uh, we'll, we'll switch to a less uh, a less uh, bleak topic as we're as we're <laughs> ramping up here. Uh, I, I discovered today. So you were in the middle of building your your own custom uh, Batman tumbler. Yes. Uh, so I'm I'm really into customizing action figures, and uh, and more recently I've gotten into making vehicles for them, and I like to do it 
by finding older, you know, sort of disused stuff. Um, like I'm currently also working on a, a kit from Knight Rider, the Knight Industries 2000, nice. um, out of like an old, you know, plastic Pontiac Firebird toy that scales correctly with a six inch action figure. So yeah, the Tumblr was, I found a, I, like it was a fold out Gotham City playset that was in the shape of the Tumblr. But, you know, it's all molded plastic and, you know, has these big plastic wheels on it and stuff. And so mm-hmm. I've stripped it down and I'm currently making up as I go along how to turn it into like a more screen accurate version to go with my Batman figure. <laughs> so that is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's been tough. Like I, you know, I do this to myself all the time where I go like, why don't I, why am I doing this? <laughs> you know, like it, it's, it's, I mean, it's a fun challenge, but I always, you know, you get to it, you hit a wall sometimes where you're just like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. So, you know, the fun part is figuring it out, I guess. But I mean, I have to imagine when you're spending so many hours a day at a, at a, you know, either a drafting table or at a, you know, tablet, however you're working, it's good to step, be able to step away from that and, and, and make your hands do something else for a while. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you know, drawing was my hobby before it became my job. And then once it's your job, you kind of run out of like, well, I don't want to, you know, do more work like when I'm done for the night or whatever. So shifting over to action figure stuff has been a lot of fun because it's still a creative outlet, Mm -hmm. but it's something I I get to do for me and it doesn't feel like, you know, more work. It's kind of like if you, you ran a restaurant and then you went home and cooked all night it's like i don't want to do that <laughs> you know <laughs> even though i love cooking so yeah you are here to talk about uh retroactive which is your new graphic novel from humanoids along with colorist brad simpson and letterer hassan Osman elhow uh matt i'm gonna let you go ahead and take the solicit blurb for the uh listeners there the discovery of time travel is unknown to the general public but a new cold war rages between global intelligence agencies as they attempt to alter historical events in favor of their respective futures. When new intel points the U.S. Bureau of Temporal Affairs, the BTA, towards a hostile anomaly in the past, veteran field agent Tariq Abdel Nasser and his partner Lucia Almos are dispatched to investigate. They discover a radical adversary wielding a new technology that could unravel everything the BTA fights to maintain. Man, it sounds so much cooler when you read it. (laughs) thanks he gets that at least once a week (laughs) uh so this is the the second of a uh, three book deal that you've got going on with uh with humanoids uh the first was count Mm -hmm. um how did this all uh get started had you pitched them stuff or uh my preferred version uh uh, did you get a text from mark wade at 2 a.m that just said you up (laughs) (laughs) that would have been cool i gotta tell you you know, Mark is one of my, uh, you know, he's on my Mount Rushmore of comics. Like he's, he's one of my, you know, ar- artistic uh, heroes. And so I still like when I get an email from him and I see his name in my inbox, it, I, it's, it's wild, you know, <laughs> um, how it all happened is that uh, a, an editor who was formerly at Humanoids, a guy named Fabrice Sapolsky, mm-hmm. uh, who actually has his own imprint now that I have a book coming out through, it's called Fair Square Comics. Um, so check them out online. Um, he had approached me about doing some art duties on one of their in-house titles that they were working on. They were kind of developing a shared sort of not quite superhero universe, but, you know, shared universe with people with, you know, abilities. Mm -hmm. Um, and I wasn't available at the time. Uh, 
but and I told him that I was looking to actually start pitching something. He said, well, you know, we do original stuff, so pitch it to me. So I did, and uh, they went for it. And then Mark was actually a big champion of of putting that book through. Um, you know, as he told me, he read it and said, "You got to sign this yesterday to you know the <laughs> higher ups." And at the time, he was just the he was like an editorial consultant, and then eventually he was brought on to be full on publisher. Um, and I was uh, wrapping count. And they said, hey, you know, what do you, we'd like to stay in business with you. You got anything else, you know, you want to talk to us about? And I said, well, yeah, um, you know, I can send some ideas. And then I pitched Retroactive and Mark liked it. And then they said, hey, and actually we want to fold this into a three book deal. So it would be count this book and then a third one. Um, so yeah, that was, that was pretty much how it went down. As we said, sort of summarizing it, this book deals with uh, time travel, uh, time loops what are some of your you know touchstones and fictions for those kinds of things yeah well you know the way i describe this book like sort of the elevator pitch is james bond meets groundhog day um and you know i i love time loop stories specifically <laughs> i mean i love time travel stories in general but there's something about the time loop where it's that you know they're doing the same thing every day and they learn from it and they adapt and i just i just love that um so groundhog day is a big one uh, Edge of Tomorrow is one of my favorite movies, the Tom Cruise, mm -hmm. Emily Blunt movie. Um, and then a, a little known TV series that was on Fox. I don't know. It was probably mid 2000s called Daybreak starring mm -hmm. Tay Diggs. And he was an LAPD detective who was framed for the mayor's murder. And the day kept repeating until he was able to like figure out who did it and, and prove his own innocence. Um <laughs> It was a really cool show. Yeah. And uh, I managed to find it on DVD at some point and, and, you know, watched it all through, but so, yeah, those are kind of the main ones, um, you know, but I've also enjoyed, like, I think there was that newer one, um, Palm Springs with, with, uh, yes. what's his name? Yeah. Andy Samberg. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that was fun. You know, I love, I love anything that, that takes that premise, but you know, usually it's done sort of for comedic purposes, it seems like, mm -hmm. um, or at least mo it's most known for that with like Groundhog Day being a comedy. So, um, and I, I wanted to do a time loop thing because I, you know, I think it's still like really fertile ground to explore as a, as a subgenre. And so I was like, well, what would I do? You know, what would make it something that I would want to do a story I'd want to tell and mashing it up with espionage was the natural thing for me because i love james bond i love you know mission impossible all that stuff so mm -hmm. uh, i kind of i kind of took those two and just smushed them together and and out came this book Very cool. if you've never read it there's a short story by neil gaiman called other people okay i will say no more all right it was in his collection i think it's fragile things okay just I, I don't want to give anything else away beyond no, I'm gonna, yeah, just from what I'll, you said, just read that story. <laughs> I'm going to make a note of it right now. We may even have it in the house because my wife is a big Neil Gaiman fan. So she's got a full, a library full of his stuff. Matt, I'm, I'm, I'm having half a memory here. Was, was there a time loop episode of C-Lab? I think there might've been, there was definitely a C, uh, an episode of the X-Files. Oh, okay. Oh, uh, nice. Monday. The title of the episode is Monday, and it's Mulder reliving the same awful Monday over and over again. Oh, I love it. I love it. I'll check that out too. I don't know. I've never seen that one. I've seen a fair amount of X Files, but I, 
I watched them all like as they were happening after the Simpsons or whatever on Fox mm-hmm. on Sunday nights. So uh, I, I never got the full comprehensive like watch through done. It's late in the series. It's probably season six or seven. Okay. Later in the series anyway. I mean, you know, ran post Mulder, but it was later in the Mulder years. Awesome. Now I'll stop recommending things that involve <laughs> time loops. I, I, I like this. We're giving them a shopping list now. Um, you know, I, I want to get into the uh, you know the sort of storytelling of the series uh, making of first, but one more kind of frivolous question here. Uh, our our regular uh, question contributor Asimov Fangirl asks: If you could travel in time and alter one event in your life, with the catch being it can only be a mundane event what would it be? Uh, she gives as an example, uh, she would have better organized herself for uh, Emerald City Comic Con she so she could get her uh, TMNT comic signed by Kevin Eastman. Ah, hmm. That's tough. I, you know, I think the first thing that comes to mind is always like, you know, that that one girl you found out liked you way after the fact or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, I'm married now, so I wouldn't want to screw that up. Um, <laughs> that's a really good question. Oh, you know, I can tell you exactly what it would be. So, um, and I don't know if this is mundane enough. We'll, we'll see, but um, this is my answer. Um, we uh, recently lost our beloved dog uh, and not to, you know, make this a downer, but <laughs> um, she had a sister that she was brought to the shelter with at the same time mm-hmm. and adopted, you know, very closely uh, together in time. And we found out after giving our dog a DNA test to find out what her, you know, she has such a unique mix of breeds in her. And we were like, we, we had to know what she was. And so we did sort of the dog equivalent of like 23 and me. <laughs> and through that, we found her sister because the, the lady who adopted her sister had done the same test. And so we linked up through the app and we ended up meeting up with them at a dog park. And we found out that we lived a mile away from each other for like wow. three years. And we <laughs> never saw each other except for one time. And this is the, this is the do over part. When I first started dating my wife and she had the dog, Shenzi was her name. She had Shenzi for about six months. I was not a dog person. Like I, you know, eventually I would grow to, you know, be obsessed with her and she, you know, she was my baby. Um, but uh, at the time it was just kind of like, eh, yeah, it's a dog, whatever. And we were at a coffee shop in our neighborhood and we saw that her sister dog out in front of the place. Mm-hmm. And we were, Oh my gosh, they're, they look the same. And we talked for a few minutes and then we had this kind of like dumb and dumber moment where we just went cool. Well, see you <laughs> later. You know, the town's that way. <laughs> Good luck. You know, like, and, and then, you know, it was another couple of years before we made the connection via the, the DNA app. So if I could go back and change something, it would be to, uh, strengthen that connection early on so that we could get the dogs together more than just a couple times. So great question. Thank you. As a mom fangirl. Great answer. I yeah. love that story. <laughs> oh man. I'm getting lots of good dog content today. This is wonderful. <laughs> you in uh, this round gross. <laughs> Did you do any, you know, research for the, the science on this? I mean, it, it, I'm sure you, didn't have to to make it sound decent but your techno babble felt less techno babbly than you know <laughs> plutonium in a delorean thank you yeah i i did um i i did some research on particle accelerators to just kind of figure out like 
what they do, what, what the theories are behind them. You know, I didn't go deep into like string theory stuff. Cause I was like, ultimately, you know, as long as I'm informed enough to make this sound plausible, then, <laughs> you know, cause in the end of the day, the buy-in is that time travel's real. Right. And if you can suspend your disbelief for that, then, uh, but yes, I, I, you know, I knew that I needed to have some very specific rules for the time travel in order for it to work because it can get just too wonky and become too much of a MacGuffin if, if, you know, or, you know, you, you kind of end up in like deus ex machina territory with time travel stuff sometimes. So I wanted to avoid that. So I knew that in order to have specific rules for it within this world, I was going to have to do enough research to make it, you know, sort of like a, a framework for that. The best worst thing that could possibly happen there is Neil deGrasse Tyson calls you out. <laughs> oh God, I would, I would love to make fun of that nerd just for being such a... <laughs> And I'm a nerd too, but like, come on, dude. You know, he's like every time. Well, actually, come on, man. Let people have their fun. You know, <laughs> like it's it's cool to a, to an extent, right? Like I love, you know, we we were just talking about the Tumblr from mm -hmm. Batman Begins. I love the Nolan Batman movies because they make it real, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's called memory cloth. Like it takes a, a rigid shape, and it, that's awesome. Like the fact that the Tumblr is a is a you know a vehicle that. Because you always go like, well, how does Batman have like such a specific car to himself? And who's manufacturing, you know, who's machining these bat logos that go on the center of the, the wheels, you know, <laughs> like on the, who's embroidering <laughs> it into the headrest, right? So I love that it's like, it was this thing that exists, existed for the company he owned and he painted it black and now it's his, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> um, so I think it's cool when, when you're offered a plausible explanation for stuff. And I, that's actually something I, I did in this book. Uh, but yeah, that's my that's my scree on Neil deGrasse Tyson just bumming everybody out with his. <laughs> well, well, you know, a that was a very that was a very good Morgan Freeman, and B, uh, <laughs> I, I like that the the discuss the discussion of you know who builds the Batmobile and puts in all those little details it get, gets to sort of contractors on the Death Star levels of uh... right. That's that's how I always think about this stuff, and a lot of people. You know, they say like, ah, oh, it's Batman or whatever. And that's fun too, you know, but like you got to figure if he's having the bat symbol, like somehow put into the soles of his boots, then like somebody's making those and they're being shipped somewhere. And you, you know, that like there's secret identity issues involved in that. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, that, I, that's, that's the level that my brain breaks this stuff down to when I could be using that, uh, for good probably but i'm not <laughs> you know? do you ever do you ever do that do you ever wonder like why am i why am i ruminating over this when i should be trying to figure out like how to use less water in my life or something you know listen we contain multitudes we can do both that's true that's true i'll take it <laughs> so uh when it when it comes to doing a, a graphic novel where you're writing you're drawing how long would you say the process is from conception to holding the finished product in your hands you know how how much of your your life is this consuming over a period of time it's a really good question it, it kind of depends like the book that i did first with humanoids count mm -hmm. i think i did that beginning to end in about seven seven and a half months and it's a it's a 120 page book so you figure that's the equivalent of six issues and each issue of a comic generally takes people about a month to draw, you know, <laughs> on average. So that was, that was pretty quick for that book. Uh, retroactive took a lot longer because um, you know, the pandemic hit right as I was starting it and that sure. 
screwed up a lot of things just in everyone's lives in terms of, you know, I, I now had a nephew who wasn't in school uh, day to day. And so I was on Zoom helping him with his homework, you know, mm. four days a week. Um, and then, you know, um, I think just the general fatigue of, of everything going on and, and the, the shift in our daily lives and stuff. So retroactive took me closer to a year to finish. Um, and the interesting thing though, is that I spent about the same amount of time, like in my office during each project, like for every day, you know what I mean? Like each day is like a 12, 14 hour day, a lot of times, but it's like how much of it is consumed by like other ancillary tasks or, you know, <laughs> like, uh, clerical work, mm-hmm. you know, which is a big part of, of being a comics professional is and anyone frankly who's an independent contractor or works from home and that kind of thing like you end up having to do a lot of you know you're answering emails and you're you know you're you're doing housekeeping in terms of sending invoices and this and that and and whereas you know you don't have an hr department to take care of things for you and stuff like that so mm-hmm. um yeah but, but yeah so the short answer is it varies but it's usually long <laughs> So I had a question formulating in my head as I was reading through the book about how you kept all the timey-wimey stuff straight. Mm-hmm. And then I get to the back matter and boom, you had a timeline. Yep. <laughs> uh, when did you realize you needed that timeline? I, you know, I want to say that I started it um, as I was planning the book out because I was trying to make sure that I was going into it with a very clear picture of, of what I was doing. Um, and then I, I believe at the end, I sort of redid it and did the version that you see there because uh, I wanted to send something to Rob Levitz, the editor, to show him, like, it makes sense. <laughs> you know, if you take it out of the abstract of, like, the story, like, if you just look at the sort of roadmap of it, it's all there. And when you're... When you're designing the future, you know, the 30, 40 years out, whatever, you're designing fashion, you're designing cars, you're designing architecture, all these elements that have to look slightly different, but still plenty familiar so that people can say, oh, that is a building, that is a car, et cetera. Right. Were any of these elements more challenging than the others? Uh, no, thankfully, uh, because I, I tried to approach it from a very real uh perspective of like you know when how many movies have we seen that were made in the 80s that took place in like you know 2015 and you watch it in 2015 it's like they got nothing right because they assumed you know year 2000 it was going to be like oh flying cars and you know and and it's like a lot of the the uh you know the world building in these things it's like they assume that every building that exists now is going to be leveled and we're going to start fresh with all this futuristic stuff. Right. When it's like they're building from the 1800s that people still work in and live in, et cetera. So mm-hmm. I've, I tried to carry that logic forward. And as such, like no buildings really look, you know, crazy or, or super futuristic in this because I figured most of them would be holdovers from at least now, you know um, with exception to like the BTA headquarters itself you know that would have been a newer building in this in this world um and so i i there's a sort of circular motif throughout this book 
where, you know, in the background and panel borders, um, you know, the shapes of panels, uh, elements, you know, there's benches, headlights, like everything, you know, light fixtures, signs. There's a lot of round and, and circular stuff in this book because I just kind of wanted to do like a cool sort of subtextual thing that's like, you know, paying homage to the idea that time is cyclical and, and you know, this, these things happening in a loop and a circle in this book. Um, so that building specifically was also designed to be round. If you were to look at it from, you know, a bird's eye view, which we do a couple of times in the book, you can see that it's like a circular shape. Um, with with fashion, I kind of looked at the just the general trends of of you know clothing in, in our time, right? Like um, within the last 10, 15 years, maybe 20, you know, suits of like the of a more 50s, 60s cut were back in, right? Whereas like 80s and 90s, they were just these huge things that you're swimming in, you know. And then like <laughs> more recently, we've gone to that more tailored you know, American bandstand sort of look or the Beatles or something. So I kind of extrapolated on that and, and just sort of did soft math in my head and went like, okay, well, you know, suits are like that, but they have some extra flares just to kind of set them apart. Like the way that, you know, the lapels are different or, or the way that people wear their collars a little bit different. Um, and, uh, and then with the cars, I, I just looked at like, for example, Tarek, the main character, drives a Mustang. I don't say it's a Mustang in the book, but, you know, if you're familiar with Mustangs, you can tell. And I, I just looked at, like, okay, well, this is how they looked in the 60s, you know, late 60s, early 70s. And then the sort of transitions they went in through the 90s and then the 2000s. And now they're a lot more in line with the, what the classic versions looked like, you know. So I figured in another 30 years, they'd probably sort of cycle back to that. So I kind of did a more streamlined you know, futuristic tech in terms of like, you know, the headlights are more like a glass panel with lights behind them as opposed to like singular light fixtures and things like that. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of thought and, and uh, effort went into designing this stuff, but in a way that wasn't going to be too like, well, that will never happen. You know, <laughs> I wanted it to, I was hoping it would age well rather than look like, you know, time cop or one of those <laughs> movies that's like, nah, we didn't do that. <laughs> So, I like that time clop is your example of a <laughs> right. I just I pictured a mullet and it was the first place my head went. <laughs> I mean, on top of that design work, you did a lot of backstory, clearly a lot of world building with the the setup of the different nations with time travel, and the, it seemed like you had really built out this world. How much did you come up with? that you didn't even wind up using heavily or at all in the book? That's a really good question. I, I, I want to say that what I came up with was basically what was used. Um, aside from, I guess, the origins of the time travel. Like I have a little bit of a roadmap of that in my head, but I didn't want to commit it to paper because that's when you end up getting into like the, the weeds of it and you go, well, hang on a second, you know. And in the end of the day, like it's time travel, you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I've, you know, I, it's funny. I've, I'm at a point where like, I just finished the script for my third book with humanoids today. And I, you know, it's another book, 120 pages. And with, with all three of these books, I just like came in right at, you know, 118, 120, like somewhere in that neighborhood where, you know, I maybe had a, a, a page or two to kind of, you know, expand something if I needed to. 
Um, and so I think I've just been able to build up a sort of inherent idea of how much space these things are going to take up and, and how much I'm going to need. And then just sort of like allow my brain to only make up that much accordingly. <laughs> Thinking about this, you know, you mentioned the, the, the circle patterns in, uh, in the book and there's, there is one page uh, that really stuck out to me where the page itself revolves around and so the, the caption boxes and everything are you know going from the way they're supposed to face to sort of sideways to upside down um that was it's definitely one of the more the, the more interesting uh touches in the book what kind of made you think about doing it that way and then also because you're affecting the lettering how much did you have to cajole Haas into going along with you on that ride? Uh, well, first of all, Haas is just an incredible collaborator and he's down for whatever. Like he's always, in fact, a lot of times I'm the one who has to be like, uh, let's not go that far. Like, cause he, <laughs> he's bless him, man. He swings for the fences. Like, and he, you know, he's always knocking it out of the park. Brad as well. I want to mention Brad Simpson, just a phenomenal, phenomenal colorist who really just brings so much to this book and, and the storytelling. Um, yeah, with regards to the the turning of the book, um, there I there was some, there were a lot of opportunities with this kind of story. I felt to play with the medium and and the way that we can tell stories in comics. And I because there's only, to my knowledge, been one other time loop thing uh, done in comics, which was a an adapt a manga adaptation of the novel All You Need Is Kill, which is what uh, Edge of Tomorrow was based on. Um, you know, I just thought like, wow, there's, there's ample room to play with this stuff. So throughout the book, every time a, a day restarts, we've got a little like circle with an arrow symbol in the corner of the panel. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, our sort of comic shorthand version to let the reader know, because we don't have the benefit of like the audiovisual kind of smash cuts that you get in like a time loop movie or something like that. So, um, and that also makes it to where you can do it multiple times in the same page. So that symbol and the circular stuff being all throughout I wanted to give the readers a, a, a much more interactive way of, of, you know, getting that idea, idea across. And so that, you know, when you're reading it, you physically spin the book around in a circle and back to the beginning and the way the page is laid out, you know, you'll know when to go to the next one. Cause you've read all the panels, but within the page itself, you could just keep going forever in a loop if you wanted to, because that's how I laid it out. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was an interesting way to, 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 I guess, have the reader kind of interact with the, the book in a way that you don't typically do. Um, and also it's kind of the second instance with the book where you have cause to spin it around because on the cover, I've got a sort of like, mm -hmm. you know, playing card style layout where you've got one image when it's right side up and then another one is upside down. And we've got the circular arrow symbol on the cover as well. So it's almost giving you the direction to spin it around so you can see it from both sides. So I wanted there to be, you know, there's a lot of mirror imaging and stuff like that in this book as well. A lot of panels that, you know, while they're different panels, the imagery is similar or the layout is the same or where the characters are juxtaposed in it against the background and things like that. So, you know, I was just doing everything I could to, to really play with things and, and layer that stuff in. This is, this is all very good impetus for folks to go out there and read the book physically uh, as well as opposed to digitally. 
Yeah, I mean, if you lock your screen on your iPad or whatever, you can do it too. So, <laughs> but yeah, I'm 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 really hopeful that people will enjoy, um, you know, the the experience of reading it and and the you know the sort of uh, little things that I put in there is like a, to try to give it some rereadability. I my hope is that this is the kind of book that you read and then you go, I got to read this again now because now I know what happened and you know I got to look for where these things were forecasted and whatnot. Uh, I mean, de definitely, you know, me reading it ahead of this, I was kind of, there were a few points where I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. And I'm like, scroll, scrolling, scrolling back. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. That's awesome to hear. I know it's a little more difficult when you're scrolling through a PDF <laughs> as opposed to flipping pages backward, but you know. <laughs> uh, uh, one thing I was curious about, uh, when there are events in the book that repeat uh, ver verbatim, are you copying art from previous pages or are you physically redrawing them uh a little bit of both sometimes you'll take the parts that you need that you've already drawn and you'll and you'll paste them in photoshop and then mm -hmm. just fill in the, the the extra stuff um but it, yeah i mean it, it kind of depends like like for example um you know we have being that this is a time loop story we have the moment where uh you know the character wakes up and the day is starting over again. And you have that same page a few times. Um, that was a mixture of, you know, some panels were redrawn. Others were, you know, I'd redraw part of it and then scan it in, paste it in. Um, but I drew this book, you know, on paper. So um, yeah. there were, there was definitely a, a sort of multimedia effort to, <laughs> to clone certain stuff. As a writer artist, how does a story evolve as you're drawing it? Does artist you ever curse at writer you because you just drew this whole sequence and now you have to go back and redraw two pages because that bastard of a writer just got a different idea. <laughs> you know, uh, there are times where I curse myself because in the script I'll, I'll have written, you know, something that's difficult. And then by the time I get to it, I'm like, oh man, <laughs> I knew what I was setting myself up for, but you know, it's a whole different thing when it's right in front of you on the day. Um, I, you know, because I work with an editor and, and especially with this book, because it was such a, a tight story that, you know, needed to stay tight there, everything pretty much stayed as it was from the script stage. Um, you know, I, I will a lot of times find that, oh, I can take away this panel or, oh, I need to add a panel here to really send this moment home. But for the most part, I, because I have the benefit of doing both. I generally know where, where my head was at when I wrote it. And then I go, okay, this is what my intention was. Um, and then other times, uh, you know, like my, if you saw my script, I don't, I don't do a lot of direction in terms of what the panels look like. I just tell myself what's in them because I know that on the day, um, you know, artist me is going to realize that, oh, well, to actually make a comic page work, some things need to be, you know, larger or smaller. And so if I, if I tell myself too much direction at the outset, I may have gotten it wrong when I wasn't looking at the, the physical real estate of what needs to go where. So, and that's one of the benefits of, of working, you know, both writing and drawing, because a lot of times, you know, artists have different priorities on the page, you know, based on what we learn about comics because we're artists and writers often don't learn a lot of those same things because it's not sort of inherent to the, the learning process of learning to write comics. And so, you know, an example of that would be 
uh, you know, kind of an old Joe Kubert rule is that you have, you know, one long shot on the page and one close up, like on every page, they should have it, you know, both of those things. And a lot of times writers don't write that because they don't know that because that's not a rule that they had to sort of learn. And obviously, you know, rules are meant to be broken, et cetera. But um, I think by and large, when you look at what makes comic book storytelling work is that you have elements like that. And, you know, other times as an artist, I might want to go real tight on something to really heighten the tension mm-hmm. and the script doesn't have it as such. Or, you know, you'll get a, you'll get a script page that says like, you know, you have a real big moment where a character shows up and there's very little dialogue. And then you've got four or five more panels that are just packed with dialogue and they're smaller moments. And it's like, well, now I don't, I can't sell the big moment because I got to make room for all of these word balloons. And so the page suffers because of that. And so um, that's the kind of stuff that I can keep in mind as I'm going that I'm fortunate enough to know to, to kind of keep an eye out for. Uh, so one thing, uh, you know, I, I, I kind of talking about the lettering a little bit more, I was curious whether there was like a, a, a discussion about, or a specific intent behind having the, the dialogue, you know, word balloons be more rectangular with, with rounded edges like they were. Mm-hmm. So in the book count, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a, and, and for those who don't know, count is my like sci-fi reimagining of the count of Monte Cristo. So it's a revenge story and, you know, it's got um, sort of undercurrents of like revolution and, and, you know, overthrowing a corrupt regime and stuff. There's also robots in it. (laughs) And so we have an Android who's kind of the sidekick character and his word balloons also lettered by Haas were in that shape. And I think we just both really dug how that looked. And because this book takes place slightly in the future, we thought, you know, it'd be cool like let's revisit that and you know and so Haas uh did like three or four mock-ups of the first page of like you know just to discuss lettering styles and uh that was the one that we all me Rob and him all went like yeah I think that's the one so Hmm. yeah now uh they uh both both Haas and Brad worked with you on uh on count are you keeping that team together for all three of the humanoids books. Yes. And hopefully in other, you know, publishing ventures as well. I mean, I'll, I'll work with those two guys as long as I can, because they're, they're really just fantastic collaborators. And, you know, there's another element to it for me, you know, Haas is uh, he's half Algerian Mm -hmm. and I'm half Egyptian. And Mm -hmm. I think together we're the most Arabic names per capita on any comic book in the, in the Western states like ever you know in in the in the mainstream uh uh market of course you know the book market there's a lot more diversity um sure but you know that's important to me because you don't see arabic names on comic books really hardly at all um i mean there's Salah and ahmed who's also holding it down mm-hmm. for us <laughs> so um but yeah so it's it's uh it's important for me from a representation standpoint to you know uh, try to try to make other folks like ourselves who may not see themselves represented in the industry and in the medium go like, Oh, well, those guys are on, you know, they're doing it. So maybe it's not, you know, exclusive to people who aren't like me. So. No, that's fantastic. Um, so you are in the, the scripting phase you said for uh, book three, correct? Mm-hmm. Well, I just, just, well, 
technically I just finished the script, but I'm sure there'll be revisions and stuff. So yeah, I'll be, I'll be tinkering for, for a bit longer on it. Okay. Good to hear. Um, but this also isn't the only thing that you've got coming out in the next uh, couple of weeks. Uh, you mentioned Fair Square earlier. So uh, they are printing uh, for the first time Jaeger, uh, which is a 2016 digital comic that uh, you did, uh, which is a uh, cold post or a, a Cold War era Nazi hunting uh, revenge story. Uh, we love to see it. <laughs> um, what made this uh, the time to release this story uh, in print? Well, um, you know, as I mentioned, Fabrice Sapolsky uh, had started his own imprint and he's had a couple of really successful Kickstarters and uh, put together an anthology called, uh, I think, Noir is the New Black. It was a, a, yeah, a noir anthology yeah. with, with black creators. Um, and, you know, he's, he's also doing his part uh, to, you know, represent more marginalized voices in the industry he himself uh i i want to say he's french but he's he's uh like uh i want to i believe jewish and polish uh you know by ancestry and so um i know that's something that's important to him as well um and so he reached out to me and said hey you know i'm doing this thing uh and i'm wondering if you have anything that you've done already that you think would be a good fit for this because, you know, you're the type of creator that we're looking to, to showcase with this kind of stuff. And I said, Fabrice, I have just the thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had, so, so Jaeger came out through a digital platform, um, you know, like you mentioned in, in 2016, but I drew it in a way that it could be printed. Mm. Um, you know, the, all the panels in, in that book are basically iPhone width but I drew them on traditional pages and in a traditional, you know, sort of gridded page layout. And the cool thing was the vertical space was open to us. So like, because it could scroll on a phone, we weren't limited by uh, height at all, just width. And so that was a really fun opportunity to play with the format, but also know that I wanted it to see print eventually. And so um, I had done some self-published small runs of it myself where I just paid to have it printed and then sold it at conventions. But this is the first time it's available through diamond in comic shops and uh fabrice got um really wonderful wonderful variant covers from uh phil hester and um oh my god i have to edit this pause out uh dennis calero <laughs> who's a phenomenal illustrator and did just a really cool cover for it um so yeah i'm really excited and you know it's got a bunch of back matter in it that's beefing it up so um, yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a, a nice little package that he put together and Fabrice does all the design stuff himself. And he's really, he's really great at like graphic design, which is cool. Cause he's also a writer. He mm -hmm. wrote, uh, Spider-Man noir, you know, which is oh. obviously a very popular version of the character now, mm -hmm. but, uh, yeah, so he's, he's been around for a while and he's got really cool ideas about comics and, you know, where the industry can go and, and innovating the way that comics are presented. So I'm really happy to be part of that with him. That's awesome. Now, uh, you mentioned the, the, you know, sort of more vertical panels because, you know, reading on your phone, that thing we're all sort of used to now with Webtoon and Tapas, et cetera. Right. Uh, how did that make layout when it, you know, when you're, when you're doing it for, you know, print is, I'm, I'm picturing a lot of like nine panel grids. Am I picturing a lot of sort of like negative space for, for sort of non 
traditionally sized panels? Like, were there any sort of tricks or challenges there? The only thing is that I, I really enjoy doing like what, you know, we call like widescreen panels where, where mm. you go the width of the page. And that was not available to me in with this project. Um, but other than that, you know, I'm somebody who likes to play with layout anyway. Um, I don't think I've got a single page that's just like a, a straight up grid in mm -hmm. retroactive, for example, and there's only one and count. Um, you know, that's not to say anything uh, negative about the more traditional grid layouts, but I think unless they're serving a specific purpose, I, they just feel antiquated to me. Like there's a lot you can do and and I'm, I'm actually somebody who like, I, I despise nine panel grids. Like when I come across one in a book, I'm just like, Ugh. because more often than not, it feels like people are just homaging Watchmen and it's like, uh -huh. okay, but why are you doing a nine panel grid? You know, like, I think you need to, there needs to be a storytelling reason for it. Otherwise you're just, you know, homaging Watchmen in a lot of mm -hmm. cases. Um, and so, yeah, I really try to play with the layout and Jaeger was a really fun opportunity to do that. Um, when you see the pages though, like there, there's very little gutter space. Like it's essentially, uh, the editor that I worked with at the time put it to me, like he, he referred to it as the Kirby quadrant. So I guess if you look at old Kirby comics, you know, they're kind of four evenly spaced panels. Sure. So that was, that was kind of the framework we had to work with. And then we could pretty much do anything we wanted so long as we kind of kept it in there. So I was tiling panels you know, I'd have one that was the entire length of the, the page. And then, mm -hmm. you know, so if you look at it on, on the printed page, um, you might have one tall one and then a bunch of little ones next to it and that sort of thing. Very cool. Uh, you have mentioned uh, Toth and, and, and Darwin Cook as influences on Jaeger, which, you know, Jesus, those are two of the all-timers, of course. Uh, you know, what are some of the artists that you jam on personally? Oh man, that's a great question. And I should say like, I, uh, Alex Toth and Darwin Cook were certainly uh, touchstones for Jaeger, but I don't purport to have come anywhere near to their, um, you know. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, those those two guys, obviously. Um, I'm a big, big fan of Jorge Zafino, who, um, for those who aren't familiar, he did Winter World, which I don't remember what the original publisher was, but but IDW put out a beautiful hardcover collection uh, Zafino was a, and his son is working today, actually. Um, uh, Gerardo Zafino is his name and his son oh. is an incredible illustrator too. Uh, but yeah, uh, Jorge Zafino was a big influence on people like John Paul Leon, on, um, Sean Murphy. A lot of Sean Murphy's like, uh, rendering techniques are, are very inspired by Jorge Zafino. Mm -hmm. Um, so he's a big one. John Paul Leon is another, um, you know, and he, John Paul Leon was kind of like, if you took Toth and Zafino and, and mashed them into this beautiful baby, that's kind of what you get. <laughs> so, um, uh, I'm a, you know, it doesn't really show in my work, but Greg Capullo, I, I love his stuff, especially that first Batman run he did. I think, mm -hmm. uh, from a, from a, I mean, he was just fire, firing on all cylinders and the way he would place the camera and just the most unexpected spots and his you know that's a big influence in the way i lay out pages is just his creativity with that um olivia Coipel is a is a favorite as well as travis charay who i think was one mm. of his big influences so um i could uh, you know i'm i'll think of 10 more as soon as we get off this call i'm sure but those are those are some of the ones that come to mind now excellent so also uh, my dog because he needs food and so i try to <laughs> draw in a way that's 
you know, hopefully good enough that I can keep getting paid and, and buy this man his, uh, his chow. That's the best segue there ever was. Uh, Ibrahim, <laughs> I will tell you, you know, we do regularly like to ask uh, our, our guests about their pets. So mm-hmm. please tell us about your dog. Oh yeah. So, uh, well, the aforementioned Shenzi rest in peace. Um, mm-hmm. she was a, there, I tell you, there'll never be another like her and her sister again. They were, uh, their great grandparents were an Australian shepherd pit bull mix mm. and then, or rather those dogs respectively that, that, you know, had offspring, they had about 7% Chinese Sharpay in them wow. and like 10% chow chow and a bunch of other stuff. And the result were these beautiful little kind of speckled dappled brown and, and black and white, um, almost like blue healers, but they were the size and dimensions of a Shiba Inu. And they, Shenzi had a curly little tail like that. And she looked like a little hyena. So she was named after the hyena from the Lion King, Shenzi. Mm-hmm. Um, she was, uh, she was just, I mean, she changed my life. Like I, I would, like I mentioned, I was not a dog person, you know, I'm, I'm half Egyptian in the middle East. Like you just don't really have dogs like we do here mm-hmm. in the States. And so I was raised with weird preconceptions about them and, um, you know, meeting her, she was, she was very standoffish and afraid of me because she was essentially like a wild dog when they, the, you know, shelter found her and my wife adopted her. I mean, she would, she would jump up on the counters and, and get into food. She ate an entire tray of cookies. Once she ate a loaf of bread, like ripped it out of the kitchen. Ate it. This is all, you know, right when I met my wife, uh, she got into a bag of flour once and there's just white oh, wow. powder everywhere. Uh, but she was just whip smart and like so well behaved once she, she was like put on the right track and uh and she i mean i'm a vegetarian because of her like i just i i saw a video of a dog playing with a cow and i was just like oh my god they're the same so i gave up red meat and then eventually that you know snowballed into all meat and and then uh at some point when my love for her grew uh to the point where i said you know what she needs a she needs a sibling because you know, they're pack animals. They live longer. So then we got this doofus who is a, uh, a from what we know, a 100% pit bull, um, also 100% goofy. He's the sweetest <laughs> boy. Uh, he, you know, he came up from Texas, you know, in a crop of dogs from, you know, like a, a shelter because they'll do that a lot because Texas has a lot of kill shelters from what I understand. And so, mm-hmm. you know, shelters local here in the Pacific Northwest will bring up groups of dogs you know so that they're not put down mm-hmm. and uh they said he was a hound shepherd mix and and that he was about two years old mm-hmm. and uh we got him and i took a look at his square head and i was like mm, he's a pit bull <laughs> <laughs> and you know and they do that obviously because people have you know a lot there's a lot of preconceptions about yeah. the breeds and whatnot but um and uh our vet said no i think he's maybe nine months to a year old so essentially we thought we were getting a two-year-old 35 pound hound shepherd mix and what we ended up with was a a nine-month-old uh 45 pound pit bull (laughs) um and he was not a starter model let me tell you but uh you know a lot of training he's got he's got he's the sweetest boy he loves nothing more than to cuddle in your lap his only drawback is his prey drive is like through the roof. You know, I mean, pit bulls, they're, they're a terrier breed and he was mm-hmm. a stray. So he was probably like finding his own food, 
And so, I mean, anything small that moves, he's, he's after it. I mean, it could be a, a Taco Bell napkin blowing through the wind, you know, and he's like, what is it? So we've done a lot of training with him to kind of subdue that and, and, and redirect him and stuff. And he's just, he's, he's my son and I love him. So <laughs> sorry, that was probably longer uh, winded answer than you're looking for. But I, when I go on a dog tangent, I can't hold it. So. We, we, we love a dog tangent. I want to hear about your, do you guys have dogs? I thought I heard one maybe in the background a little bit. Uh, yes, you, you did hear my oldest uh, barking. So I have two miniature dachshunds. Uh, the uh, eldest is Chewy. She is 12. Uh, and she tends to be the ornery, orner, the more ornery one. Uh, sure. Always has been. <laughs> Uh, the younger one, kind of uh, same as the case of your dog, is our very sweet, very dumb one. Uh, she is a, she's a mix of something. I'm not I'm not sure what else is in there, but her she's got more of like a kind of snub nose uh, than any other dachshund I've seen. And also she's cow spotted. Her name is Lola. Uh, oh. We call her Derp because she's got an aggressive overbite, and also often her tongue will just kind of slip out. That's just the cutest thing when dogs have that. Oh my God. Yeah. Rocky, our, our pit bull, he, um, he had to have some teeth removed because he came to us with one of his canines, uh, fractured. And so, mm-hmm. you know, that was a, eventually they say, you know, I'm obsessed. You got to take it out. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, he got into a, a fence kerfuffle with a neighborhood dog. Um, he loves other dogs, but when they, uh, show signs of aggression at him he loses his mind <laughs> and and this this dog in the neighborhood very sweet one-on-one but it's got you know some some reactivity problems and sure. uh they got into it at the fence he broke a, a tooth on the fence and so he had to have his lower canine removed as well on the same side and as such he doesn't have the that wall of teeth to hold his tongue in so it lolls off to the side now <laughs> but he you know he's derpy but he's also very very smart and it's uh it's, it's really fun to see him like do problem solving and, and work out patterns and things like that. Um, and he knows, you know, uh, before we lost Shenzi, I would tell him like, you know, at dinner time, like go get her for dinner. And he would just go off and bring her back. And, you know, <laughs> so yeah, he's a, he's a great guy. This guy. I'm a cat guy. Well, t- Matt, tell me about your cats. What do you have? One, two, how many, we have, you one right now uh we lost mr cal uh back in october i'm so Uh, sorry we adopted him we'd only had him for 10 months we adopted him basically as kitty hospice oh he was was an elder cat and he was he was 15 he was at a shelter they'd called him unadoptable because he was 15 he had kidney problems and a heart murmur and that's exactly what shenzi had she had a heart murmur it was um congestive heart failure and then the meds they put her on when it got worse just obliterated her kidneys and that's yeah. you know so was it a similar situation with mr cal or he was i you know it might have been at one point by the time we got him they just kind of were like just treat him as well as you can yeah and we gave him because he was cal with a k so cal l yeah i and, love it Superman uh, yeah, is my exactly. whole, yeah, I'm, I'm with it. <laughs> that was, that was the name he came with. He was Cal. Oh, wow. And so, okay. Yeah. Cal with a K. Apparently it's actually f- was from a Brandon Sanderson series of novels, Kaladin. Oh, okay. Yeah. But uh, my wife 
she saw a pic, the him on Instagram on the shelter's Instagram and was just like she fell in love with these big eyes and this big yeah. goofy I, I kind of teased her like boy he's a gangly awkward tall boy with long legs who walks into things you've got to type my love <laughs> uh, but he was he was just we had him you know we spoiled him rotten for the 10 months that we had him and he but aside from him we still have and she's we've had her for 10 years uh queen bess she's oh, she's okay. my girl I love like it. yeah we we adopted her when when she was five and she's now 15 herself and she's she's getting up there but she's still you know plodding around but she attached herself to me and yeah. I am her person. So when Cal came around, he attached himself to Amber, my wife, because yeah. Bess was very proprietary of me. But she's this it. just skinny little grumpy old lady who wants nothing more than to spend her entire day on my lap. I work from home most days. So I gave up trying to work from our office. I now work from the recliner in the living room because she just wants to be on my lap all day, and I cannot tell her no. Hey, cats rule everything around me. Cream, get the money, right? <laughs> well, no. Matt, bless you both for for taking that guy in. I mean, that's, you know, once I get over, well, I shouldn't say get over. Once I'm able to process through the heartbreak of, of losing Shenzi, it's only been uh, just under a month. Um, I'm, I'm hoping eventually, you know, that, that we can do something similar for senior dogs you know i i kind of have this fantasy of going to the shelter and just saying like show me the one who's been here the longest you know <laughs> and, so yeah that's 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 so important man and every every one every single one of those you know is a is a big deal so thank you both for doing that that's amazing we you know we we thought about it again but Bess has always sort of wanted to be a one cat cat because we adopted her out of a house that had seven other pets and she, she had her fill. Yeah, yeah she was... exactly. She <laughs> yeah. was not a fan. And Cal was, despite being twice her size, let her push him around because he was very easy going. Yeah. And we don't know if we would ever have that luck again. And so, sure. yeah, Bess, yeah. I mean, she's 15. She is healthy. I mean, she's got some kidney stuff, but that's, elder cats that's just sort of right. the way it is yeah so we knock wood you know figure we still got a couple of years before we have to worry about bess's real decline but we'll yeah. we kind of want to let her have those last couple of years where she is just queen of the castle before we start considering more pets except for possibly if i can ever get our sun porch emptied out of all of my crap uh, uh then we might get a bunny who would live out on the sun porch we've done that yeah. before oh, because then awesome. the bunny has its own space and right. it's not getting in bess's way and bess is not getting in its way and she wouldn't do much of anything she bullied a cat who is you know twice her size but the last time we had the bunny the bunny would chase her so <laughs> She's not a very good predator. Yeah. Well, long may she reign, my friend. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Rocky's, he's, uh, he, Shenzi was very tolerant of him. And I, and we're in a similar situation where we're like, could we introduce this? I mean, he's such an attention hog and she was so chill about it. Like, you know, I, I don't know how it would go down, but it remains to be seen. <laughs> So uh, one other thing that you've got uh, coming out, just want to make sure people were aware of, uh, 
April 20th, as we're recording, a lot of books have been shuffled lately. So, you know, always check with your local comic shop. Uh, you've got uh, Doctor Strange Nexus of Night Nightmares with uh, Ralph Macchio. So, uh, you know, I, I was curious with, with this book. I wasn't sure if this was, you know, being pitched as sort of a, a, a throwback or, or something along those lines, you know. I, I guess, well, I guess, you know, first of all, what can you tell us about this one? <laughs> Yeah, so it's a, I mean, as a lot of people probably know, Doctor Strange is dead right now. So <laughs> they're in the, in the comics. The, well, I mean, he's not real, so I guess, he, you know. <laughs> but, uh, um, yeah, so this is like a kind of a flashback story. It's just sort of like a, like plucked out of time, you know, kind of uh, one shot vignette sort of thing. Um, and yeah, basically uh, the premise is that uh, Baron Mordo has teamed up with Nightmare to try to uh come at dr stephen strange via his dreams and so you know he has to overcome that and do cool magic stuff and uh it was a blast to draw man i'm a i'm a big fan of the character and so getting to like you know put my take on it and and try to draw my version of the old ditko like nightmare realm and stuff was a lot of fun that that was the thing I was kind of curious about. If this was supposed to be set in the past, you know, was this a book where you would try to go for something equivalent to Marvel House style, or are you still, you know, going all out, you know, uh, Mustafa on it, or, or you know, whatever? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, I, my my mo is to always just draw the way I draw, and you know, hopefully that's good enough for people. <laughs> like, and as you know, to Marvel's credit, like they're really great about hiring a lot of different art artists with different art styles you know i mean i think i think there's probably a thing where like yeah if you draw like Stuart imminent for example like you're mm -hmm. you're gonna be pretty secure with work you know <laughs> like, uh but but i mean if you look at them compared to uh dc over the years like i feel like they've really taken a lot bigger strides in terms of like yeah let's get this more eclectic style or you know this more esoteric artist for this thing Mm -hmm. um i think dc is doing more of that now that dan didio is no longer there because i from what i understand he was a lot more of a of a you know like straight line about no the, you know it's got to look a certain way and um you know i think i think the thing is if you drew like jim lee over there you were you were getting more work than than people who didn't mm -hmm. um but yeah uh so with respect to that like i definitely just did it how i did it and you know um I was paired with a really great colorist on that too, Niraj Menon. We just collaborated on a old man Logan one shot back in like October, I think it came out or December. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun and I'm really happy with how, the, how the colors turned out and um, the editor on that was fantastic. So yeah, I think, I think it's gonna be a fun one. It's very throwbacky. Like it's, it's definitely written as kind of an homage to like the old Lee Ditko stuff, but with modern visual sensibilities. So that was a fun kind of way to do that. So one thing that I was curious about, so, uh, you know, Matt, Matt had just put in the docket, you know, he was just at, just as a point of conversation, you know, whether you're watching uh, Moon Knight on Disney plus, but as we were kind of doing the research for this, I stumbled across like a whole, across a whole bunch of articles that are like those sort of like Moon Knight episode explainers. Mm -hmm. And they're all referencing this uh, Moon Knight annual that you did like two years ago with Colin. Oh, Blatt. really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, funny what, what were the parallels they were uh it was it was a lot of stuff with um you know there's like a little scarab MacGuffin in the show oh yeah oh god yeah yeah <laughs> i drew that for like 30 pages i forgot all about it. 
<laughs> yeah. So uh, the thing that I was curious was like, was that was that a, a story that was part of like it was like an acts of evil series of themed annuals? Right. They just had people fight random villains. So it was like Moon Knight and Kang. I'm yeah. telling you your own story. I'm sorry about that. No, but, no, like, sorry. <laughs> listeners got to know, right? <laughs> um, you know, was that a story that you were expecting to have legs when you drew it? You know, uh, I knew it was a lot of fun and, um, I, I, I wouldn't have anticipated that there would be any kind of parallels to like a show they were doing. Um, and you know, I guess the idea of, of Moon Knight, you know, of Conchu having different avatars over, over the generations is not new to our story that, you know, Colin and I did, but, mm-hmm. um, I think it, it was one of the more like condensed like hey it's all right here sort of things mm-hmm. um so yeah i've seen a few I, I mean i hadn't considered the scarab thing but i i think also like um it taking a little bit more of a supernatural bend might have you know i i'm not gonna say that they you know read our thing and were like let's do this for anything but um yeah i i'm i'm surprised that it's not just the more straightforward like you know marvel's batman take on the character that they're going like you know, because I mean, as far as I know, Moon Knight's always been a guy who wears a suit, right? Like, it's never been like it, it emanates from him or some magical thing. So, uh, and, and maybe I just, you know, that's a blind spot in my Moon Knight reading history. But yeah, it's it's cool to see. And I got to tell you, man, like, I I never thought I'd watch a Marvel show, you know, or or anything Marvel. And like, I mean, like, produced and directed by Mohammed Diab, who's an Egyptian. <laughs> uh, uh, filmmaker and um you know there's there's like arabic music in it um and just it's so unexpected when that stuff pops up because you're it's i'm not used to it you know and so like getting these little surprise moments and feeling it's like oh this is what it feels like for everybody else you know or for for the larger groups of people who are represented by this stuff like mm-hmm. you know um so yeah, I mean, I imagine that's how like Norwegian people feel when they watch Thor stuff, you know. It's like, <laughs> or like, uh, I mean, I had a little bit of it with Black Panther because I'm like, yeah, Egypt's in Africa. I mean, you know, that's what... <laughs> I'm technically I'm African American, you know. Um, so like with, with this stuff, you know, when it's like they're in Egypt and there are mm. you know Egyptian actors in it and stuff like that, it's like, oh man, this is this is pretty rad. That's awesome. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely glad to hear that unrelated and not really a, a question but again in that little talking points that i threw on in in there uh you know twitter stalking you or going into the interview gotta just thank you for introducing me to the shock of gene colon drawing the teenage mutant ninja turtles oh man isn't that that's something right i mean colon is one of the the you know the one of the goats i mean that yeah. tomb of dracula is a, one of my favorites and it was a scene that was like huh yeah did not see that coming yeah <laughs> Um, no, you know, I just read a, a, an old uh, Captain America and Falcon issue that he drew from, I think, probably the 69-ish. Excuse me, I think 69 or 70. Mm-hmm. Um, and it it could be published today. Like, it, it looked that good, you know. He was so far ahead of his time, I feel like. Or at least, maybe not even ahead of his time, but just like, he was somebody who who really drew very grounded, believable stuff but with an, a fun cartoony bend to it you know um in certain places and uh so yeah to to learn that he was on the ninja turtles was just like and i believe that was in the archie uh days when they oh, were wow. publishing it yeah so 
No, I, I gotta say, man, I really appreciate all the research you guys have done. It's nice to like go into this and you know, there's like some uh, some foundation there. It's cool. <laughs> so thank <laughs> you. you. We try. We try. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, it's it's funny. I'm thinking now because Colin also did after after Stern and Byrne left Cap, he did like a two parter where Cap goes to like Dracula's castle or something like that. Oh, the, the master was not home at the time, but um, it was that was like a it was it was a it was a fill in story, but it was like a hauntingly beautiful fill in story. If you know what I mean, that's cool. I got to check that out. Yeah, I'm any. Anytime his art comes across my eyeballs is a, is a good time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'll say no disrespect to whatever colorists worked with him on Tomb of Dracula, but I read it in the essentials, the black and white phone books. Oh, that's the and, move. Yeah. Colin yeah. in black and white is just stunning. Mm-hmm. That was, you know, I, I, I read that avengers issue for the marvel by the month podcast where they go through you know the history of marvel one month at a time Mm -hmm. and um that was the thing i said it was just like i mean i know they were limited by the technology of the time and whatnot if you if you had dave stewart color that issue that i read today Uh i mean you know it's still flat colors and he he generally you know he does rendering but it's largely a more flat approach to the colors which i think works great with with you know those more bold art styles um god i mean it would just be it would look like it was drawn last week you know mm-hmm. yeah and, and that's the thing like we, you know when you look at sort of modern collected editions there's there's often the complaint about how sort of modern coloring methods don't necessarily gel with the original pencils because you know you're talking about two different kinds of comic making just not quite gelling together but also, you just said Dave Stewart coloring Gene Cole. And I'm like, yeah, no, I that yeah, I'd like to see that. Yes, no, that would work. Yeah. I think when it doesn't work, it's because they're they're modeling it too much. You know, they're doing airbrushy, like really soft transitions. And it's like that art wasn't made in a time when that was a way of coloring. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it ends up looking like really anachronistic, right? Whereas like if you look at Lynn Varley over Frank Miller it's timeless. And there's a reason it's timeless is because she painted it like with, you know, either watercolors or colored inks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And like, we're still using that today, you know, and, or at least a lot of people are mimicking that with digital tools. And so, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, that's the stuff that stands the test of time. And so I think when you take those two things and try to bump them together, it's like a real square peg round hole situation, you know? Definitely. Uh, so, uh, what are, what are you reading right now? Oh, gosh. I, you know, the most recent thing I read was the, the newest volume of something is killing the children. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I don't know if you guys have read that, I, but during my Matt's face, he has, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. uh, that book is phenomenal and it, it lives up to the hype. Let me tell you, I was, you know, I, I tend to be one of those people sometimes I hate to admit it, but like, if something gets really, really hyped, I go like, eh whatever you know (laughs) and not that i'm trying to rebel it's just like a weird natural reaction to it but uh i i picked up that book i think it was on comiXology unlimited like the first volume and i tried it out r.i.p comiXology and and boy oh boy was i knocked off my feet from that book i mean it, it, it took me back to reading the walking dead when i just like needed to devour the next trade right away you know like i needed to know what was going to happen and 
it's drawn so beautifully. Like it's got a very European sensibility, which I'm very drawn to. Um, and yeah, just the, the pacing and the way that, that uh, Delaria, I, bl I believe is the artist, uh, were there Delaria, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Um, the way he like, will will just take a ton of panels and put them on a page. And you, you would think like it wouldn't work, but it does. And he'll even do like a two page spread. That's like 15 panels or something. And it like, can't the angle so it's like slightly skewed and it just like it's just beautiful and of course you know james tynan the third second third he's fourth one, fourth <laughs> he's he's one of multiple james yeah. tynan um uh you know it's fantastic writer so it's just it, it's 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 awesome stuff very cool well how about uh, you guys what are you what are you reading oh yeah um matt why don't you go uh, a lot uh, <laughs> that's good to, to, to keep up with all this i yeah. read a lot um I, i'll say for this week the stuff coming out the two things i'm most excited for are speaking of tiny and his new corinthian miniseries from vertigo what was vertigo yeah uh and the new Brubaker and Phillips, the new Reckless volume. Yes, because I've been I've been devouring those as well. I got to get yeah. that new one. Yeah, yeah. I, I I am a Brubaker and Phillips head, and same. It's yeah. like we, our the Comics XF newsletter this this month this week. I didn't pick that as my pick of the week because I knew somebody else would, and I wanted to to do the Corinthian because I always pick the Brubaker and Phillips. It's always it's kind of a given. I was like somebody else will pick it. And they yeah. did. I was like, yeah. no, but I'll go with the one that might have slipped under people's radars this time. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to be picking that up. Uh, the new Brewbreaker and Phillips as well. Uh, Ghost in You, I believe it's called. Um, Farmhands coming back from Rob Guillory. So I'm excited to pick that back up again. I'm reading all the uh, X-Men stuff. It's, you know, it's funny. Actually, I went to, I went to my comic shop today and uh, up, updated my poll and added a ton of stuff so i'm like give me all the judgment day tie-ins uh throw in uh they just announced that it's like a mark russell and mike allred superman story yes. uh, space yeah. Yeah. that's gonna be gorgeous i'm excited for that yeah i'm a bit i mean superman is the whole reason i got into comics like i've loved him ever since i was a little kid and and yeah i saw that announcement a couple days ago and i was like gonna get gonna get that one <laughs> i had to you know i was i'm so bummed mike allred lives in eugene oregon which is, you know, it's like an hour and a half, two hours from Portland. And I had an invitation to go check out his studio and, and stuff. And Ooh. I couldn't do it. I don't remember why. I think I had a deadline or something. I was so bummed because I found out that he also is into customizing action figures and building, you know, like he built a, oh, wow. he has the Hot Toys uh, 66 Batman and Robin. And he built a Batcave for it, like a screen accurate Batcave for it. And that's a hundred percent up my alley. Like totally my jam is making screen replicas on a small scale. So I was like, ah, you know, <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. I have to go digging for that stuff on the internet. Yeah, check that's out awesome. his Instagram. It's, yeah. it's on there. Yeah. It's fantastic. Oh man. Well, uh, Ibrahim, this has been a uh, fantastic uh, time. Final question before we let you go feed the dog uh how can people follow you online and keep up with uh, retroactive and everything else that you're working on yeah if you go to my website ibrahimmustafa.com i've got um you know a list of the stuff i've worked on as well as uh links at the bottom you know there's a little twitter icon instagram and youtube 
those are the best ways to keep up with me. I post different stuff across each one. So there's kind of something there for each, uh, you know, feed. Um, and then, uh, yeah, if you go to retroactivecomic.com, you can watch a trailer for the book uh, that I put together. And then you can also find links to pre-order it there via Amazon, Barnes and Noble. And then there's a, a local comic shop locator tool there. Um, so yeah, and, and that, there's a link to that in my website as well. So you can find all of that under that banner. Very cool. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me guys. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom, Chris's on Infinite Earths, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. Uh, P.S. Matt and Will, sorry I made you read White Knight again. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a slot in the ComicsXF staff picks. A $3 donation gets you access to our new bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, Kat Purcell from ComicsXF, Liz Large from ComicsXF, Will Nevin from ComicsXF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, the Forceworks character Century was apparently part of Combo Man. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.